Welcome to episode 65 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans. And it's been a few weeks since we last talked. Mm-hmm. What have you been watching, Brittany? I kind of took a turn into some spooky movies. <laughs> I recently watched The Final Terror. So years ago, I inherited a bunch of VHS tapes from one of my like aunts. And I must have been like 13 at the time. And they were from whenever she was younger. She would like watch all those HBO channels and like movie channels and like record the movies on VHS tapes. So one of them, I think I was watching this movie um, called Corvette Summer. And it was recorded over another movie. So when Corvette Summer ended, there was this crazy ending of like obviously a horror movie. And I'm like, what the hell is this movie? So I finally found out what it was, and it's the freaking Final Terror. So I watched it this weekend. The only recognizable actor or actress in it is Daryl Hannah. Okay. She's very young. It's probably, I think, pre-Splash. But it's basically about just a group of girls along with a group of forest rangers. And they go camping. And one night, they're around like a fire, and they're telling scary stories, and one of the guys, one of the forest rangers, starts telling the story about a woman from the mental asylum in the woods. Because I don't know if there's still a lot of mental hospitals that are in the woods, but that was like a big thing in the past. When my friend was committed in Baton Rouge, we had to drive like really far away, like almost into the wilderness to get to it. Okay, so I guess yeah, it's still a thing. But yeah. I remember like that used to be just like a thing. Oh, like put them in the woods or whatever. And that usually if they are I don't know if it's proven to help but like being out in nature and everything like that so there's a mental facility not that far from where they're camping and he's like oh one of the mental patients got raped and got pregnant and then went crazy and like lived lives in the woods and like terrorizes campers so there's like this spooky story come to life <laughs> so there's somebody in the woods that's kind of like hunting them and you kind of see glimpses of this thing and it's just like long gray matted hair. Their hands are like black. They're so dirty with like, you know, long curly fingernails and like a a bunch of like blades and stuff that are like stuck in like the creature's arms. Sounds like half like Halloween, you know, like Michael Myers, the sca- yeah. escape mental patient. Yeah. And then like oh, half uh, okay. Friday the 13th. So you have like, you know, creepy woods uh, yeah, and it's the redwood forest so it's, it's even creepier because the trees are so freaking huge and like the camera just kind of pans up and you know you kind of see like a little bit of light but it's so dark it's like one of those hor- 80s horror movies that are just so like blurry and dark where you can just see things that are kind of like wet with sweat and gooey so it's, it's pretty gross there are some interesting deaths that occur like right in the beginning before like the camping expedition starts there's a couple that's riding their motorcycle through the woods because that's obviously a thing and the motorcycle like they make a turn too hard or something like that and they have like a little incident so the girlfriend on the motorcycle goes to get help and then she comes back and her boyfriend's like hanging from a tree with his throat slit and then all of a sudden she like screams and turns around and there's a like these like this booby trap with these huge branches and tops to um cans I've seen this movie. Yeah. And it, okay, cool. Because it's, it's so interesting. And like, it just gets released and she dies from getting cut by a bunch of cans. Like, it sounds can like... Can lids. It sounds cans. like such a generic, like, 
80s slasher movie, but yeah, the booby traps is what I remember. Yeah, it's it's kind of like an 80s slasher movie, but like a survivalist movie, because like once the creature starts like picking them off, they start to like disguise themselves with like mud and like leaves, and they're they're trying to trap the creature, like, like in Predator or something. Yeah, it's yeah. very very predator like. Um, so they eventually find a cabin, like two of their friends go missing and they find a cabin and they find the head of one of the friends in the cabin and then, um, the hand in a pickle jar. So yeah. <laughs> That's a good image. It's, it's, it's pretty gross. Um, it just looks like it smells really bad, especially the creature, just like matted hair with leaves. It looks like this thing has never seen soap in its life. So you're trying to figure out, is it the escaped psycho lady from the asylum that, got raped or is it just like some backwoods crazy person that's picking off people to kill for fun yeah so that that's kind of like the two things that i thought of like before the big reveal happens in the end which is very 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 interesting and involves a really cool booby trap i think i reviewed it like last year or two years ago oh and i think i remember like kind of wishing there were more booby traps because a lot of like the twists and the story beats and like the teenagers all feel like they're from other movies you've already seen before mm-hmm. but like the booby trap kills with like the rusty like tin cans are like what makes the movie stand out and like, i didn't even remember seeing it until you said <laughs> that and i was like oh yeah i have seen that kind of recently i kind of wish there were like more like kills like that because those were, were really fun. cool and they were really scary because it's like oh like someone just ate like those giant cans of peaches and <laughs> took all the lids and put them on a branch and someone died that way like how could somebody die like it's that it's pretty grimy like it's imagine pretty, even so, like ugh. your throat slit by like a rusty can of peaches and it's probably lid. still like some old syrup <laughs> like all stuck on it and shit so gross i remember the ending having a pretty big booby trap kill too yeah yeah that's the only other one that i can like really think yeah of. there should have been more in between the but. ending's like fantastic yeah. i think so um yeah so i watched the, the final terror um and then after that i watched this movie called the crew from 1994 it was really hard for me to even find anything about it on the internet that's how much people didn't like this movie so if there's anything about it online it's very like negative but this is a very crazy film it stars donald logue and he plays in grounded for life He's the dad. He has like that uh, red yeah. hair. And it also stars um, Pamela Gidley. And she was the um, blonde girl in Highway to Hell that he had, that uh, yeah. the main guy had to rescue. So that was pretty cool. And she also played in that um, Twin Peaks prequel film that came out Fire Walk with Me. Yeah. I've never seen that, but I heard it's good. Also, Laura Palmer's parents are in this movie too. <laughs> They're her um, in-laws. It's crazy how many like early 90s cheap slashers and cheap horror movies have Twin Peaks actors in them. Yeah, so basically Sarah Palmer and Leland Palmer, who are together in Twin Peaks, they are together in this movie as well. They're husband okay. and wife. And she is like an alcoholic that shoots herself in the head in the beginning of the film. And then after all that ins- insanity happens, it goes to the couple going on a boat trip with her brother. So um, her brother is played by Viggo Mortensen. And I don't think I've ever seen him in anything like that early in the 90s. Like 1994. Like I didn't even know he was like acting at that point. So he's basically um, a bigot and a racist. Pretty shitty person. Obviously they all have money. They drive like Mercedes. They live in these huge homes. He owns a boat and they're going out to like the Bahamas for the weekend or whatever, just cause they can. 
And on the boat, there's like his girlfriend and another, um, this like really weird like musician. Um, so it's just kind of a, a weird dynamic to start with, with this group of people on the boat, but they're out on the boat and they see another boat on fire. And the first thing that, um, the racist brother says is, Oh, it better not be a bunch of Haitians with AIDS or something like that. Cause he doesn't want them on his boat. Yikes. <sighs> so then they look a little further and he's like, Oh, they're white. And it's, it's a guy and a girl. So the guy and the girl jump off the boat that's on fire and they see that there's another boat. So they swim to their boat, get on it. And within five minutes, the guy that jumped off the boat looks in his backpack and pulls out a gun and is like, you're bringing me here. So, so much for trusting the white people. Um, (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny. But it turns out that the guy that's holding up everyone on the boat and forcing them to go to this certain island is, he's played by, shit, what's his name? Jeremy Sisto. Oh, that's a familiar name. He played in a bunch of, like, random 90s movies. Um, He was in that movie May that I talked about not that long ago. If you see his face, you would recognize him. So Jeremy Sisto is holding up the boat, everyone on the boat, being pretty nice about it, though. Like, he's not really violent. He just wants to use the boat to get somewhere. And then it becomes obvious that he has a boyfriend because he's using the boat phone, which is, of course, like this 10 ton phone because it's like pre-cell phone days. (laughs) And he's like talking to a guy like in like a very like sexual way or more of a romantic way. And then, of course the racist bigot brother starts calling him like the F word. Oh, nice. Um, And then we find out that Jeremy Sisto's character, I can't think of the character's name right now, but he's a transsexual and he just had a gender reassignment surgery. And so he's very, I don't know. He's just very like emotional um, because something major just happened to him. And the woman that's with him is an illegal immigrant. And so the brother starts making comments like, I don't want an illegal on my boat and all this kind of stuff and then um donald logue he basically says you don't want an illegal immigrant on your boat but you're a lawyer for drug dealers so it's okay for you to live off of like money made illegally so there's kind of like i was like oh this really shitty movie from 1994 kind of mirrors a lot of shit going on in 2018 it was so it was just so weird it sounds like it's building like you just really want to see that guy die in like a horrible way. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but the ending is very like, it's sad, but like in a, it's kind of like comforting. And I don't know, like, I don't want to talk about the ending too much. Cause I think like, that's like a good reason to watch the film, but it was just a crazy, crazy like movie. Like, is it, it like a drama or a thriller? It was supposed to be a thriller, but it didn't feel like a thriller. Like nobody was really like scared of this guy. Like they know like he's harmless. He just wants to use the boat to get to do whatever he needs to do. Let's just do it. And then he'll leave us alone. Like he's not being violent, not making people do weird shit at gunpoint. Like that weird Robert De Niro movie, like Cabin by the Lake. It's Cabin by the Lake, right? I'm sure there are plenty of weird Robert De Niro movies <laughs> where he makes people do stuff at gunpoint. Well, he's doing stuff at gunpoint on a boat. Okay. But it's not anything weird. Um, so he's being, like, really nice, and I don't know. So did, there's not, like, a lot of tense moments. Um, I don't really want to talk more about it because it'll give away <laughs> the ending, which I liked a lot. But, uh, yeah, I, I was really surprised by that movie. Pretty much that's what I've been, like, watching lately, just, like, these kind of, like, Weird little horrors and thrillers that I've been having on my, like, to-watch list. I'm just, like, knocking them off. 
It's like after Labor Day, so pretty much summer's over. We're like pretty much declaring it Halloween season already. I know. And I feel like when I watch like thrillers and like horror films, I like I feel very relaxed as opposed to like watching comedies and dramas and things like that. Like there's because I like I know like what kind of emotions I'm going to be feeling. So it's like I I have that like intense moment of like oh my god like what's gonna happen what's gonna happen and then what happens it's like this calmness comes over me kind of like when you hold in your pee all day and then you go to use the bathroom like at the end of the day and it feels so good it's like weird stress relief Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's what they are for me so what have you been watching uh i guess i should talk about a couple movies that like really freaked me out in that way like like creepy horror movies cool I went to see a anime film in the theater for its like 20th anniversary release called perfect blue uh, it's from 1997. The director also did Paprika. I don't know if you ever saw that. Wasn't Perfect Blue like a film noir kind of anime? Or am I thinking of something else? It's kind of that. It's set in the like early days of the internet. Um, cool. <laughs> and it very much falls into like my evil internet thriller category. This lady is like a pop star and has a bunch of adoring fans and has a sort of like innocent girlish persona on stage. And her management team, like the company that manages her career, decides that we're going to move you into acting. And it's like a more adult, sexualized role. She has to play in this like noir-type TV show. And her fans react to it very poorly. Like the the change from her being like this innocent girl to this like sexualized, like nude It's kind of like what happened to Britney Spears. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it's exactly like that too because there's like this tragedy to the fact that None of these decisions are hers, really. No one's asking her what she wants to do. She's, like, being asked to, like, expose her body and, like, act out these, like, really gross rape scenarios on this, like... Oh, my God. Terrible TV show. And uh, she's getting punished for it from, like, all sides. And the stress of the fans and what her management's doing to her start to, like, really weigh on her body and her mind. And at the same time, there's, like, a stalker that is pretending to be her online. And it's the first time she's ever seen the internet is like someone comes into her house and sets up the computer uh, (laughs) and she finds this blog where someone's like writing in first person as her old self, like as her pop idol self and saying like, I did this today or that's not the real me. That's an imposter. And the stress of all of this starts building up to where she can't tell what's real and what's not. She has these dreams. She has the TV show character she's playing she has her pop idol past and her own like inner dialogue and all these different like conflicting personalities inside of herself because all these different people are asking her to be different things. And she just loses touch of like what's really happening. If she's dreaming, if she's even alive anymore, she can't even tell. Wow. And all the people in her life that sort of like influenced her to be on this TV show that's kind of like ruining her brain start showing up dead one by one like a manager or like a photographer who took nude photos of her start showing up murdered with like a screwdriver and cool. she has no idea if she's doing it if she's even or the stalker awake. is doing it yeah wow even if the stalker's a real thing or if she's doing it to herself like did I make that blog post I don't even know and it's so effectively creepy like, it's really beautifully animated, and, you know, there's, like, a lot of dream imagery and, like, weird logic to it. Mm. Uh, Paprika is a very similar film in that way. It's psychedelic, but in this, like, sugary pop. You know, like, in Suicide Club, where yes. it's, like, a horrifying <laughs> experience, but then they have all those, like, pop idol, like, kids singing, like, 
call me. Ring me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a weird juxtaposition between like the horrific stuff and like the sugary pop. And the movie is so creepy. I think Suicide Club's a pretty good marker because it does go into some like really uncomfortable places too. Okay. The way that movie does. So it's not just, I see what you're saying. And a lot of animes like that where it could take it to the next level because it's animated. Mm-hmm. So it usually does take it to the next level. And I feel like a lot of modern animation, especially the like computer animated stuff, mm-hmm. it's not really using the medium the way it could. Like, it's pretty restricted in the visual and the storytelling style. And it feels like almost like intellectually lazy. Like, you're not even like breaking logic and the laws of physics right. the way you can with animation. Because you have like a platform that lets you be as like creative as you can ever possibly can. So, right. Yeah. Kind of feels like a waste to not use it. Yeah. And this uses it so well because, you know, like dreams and the eerie internet stuff, like, it, it's kind of like beyond basic logic. It's changing the rules of perception to freak you out. Uh, and I think it works really well in this movie. I really hope that someone, you know how they have all these great fan-made trailers on YouTube? Really hope someone made one with um, I'm Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. <laughs> and Perfect Blue. By Britney Blue. Spears <laughs> for like Perfect Blue. Yeah. Because that's what it's, <laughs> I just keep thinking of Britney Spears when you're talking about I was actually this. thinking a lot of Selena during it too. Cause, uh, Ooh. Well, it kind of happened to her. Yeah, she got a lot of those pressures. And this was a little closer to that time because mm-hmm. it was like the mid-90s. Okay. Uh, but... Yeah, really beautiful, eerie stuff. Like, actually freaked me out in the theater. Yeah. And um, there should be a new digital restoration for rental and purchase or whatever. So you can see it, like, really nice and crisp on, like, Blu-ray right now. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah, I really liked it. Um, and then this weekend, I saw Mandy. I don't know if you've seen the previews for that, but it's... I haven't. one of the best things I've seen all year. Really? Yeah, it's so good. I like whenever a movie is a person's name. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. So what's up with Mandy? Uh, Mandy is a <laughs> early 80s like heavy metal nerd who lives in the wilderness in this nice house with a uh, boyfriend played by Nick Cage. And he's like a logger who like flies in and out uh, to jobs in the woods. Wait, this takes place in the 80s? Yeah, like early 80s. And sh- is she young? Uh, she's like our age, she's like like early thirties. But Nicholas Cage is her boyfriend. Yeah, he's like a grandpa right now. Do they make yeah. him look younger? Uh, I think the character was written to be younger than him. It felt like that to me, anyway. Whoa. Uh, so he plays like this like grizzled logger <laughs> who like flies in and out with a heavy to jobs. metal girlfriend. Yeah, okay. and he's a metal guy too. Oh, I think. thank God. So she's alone a lot in the woods, and there's this creepy Jesus cult that uh is sort of stalking her and abducts her and Whoa. ends up killing her Well, because early in the Jesus film. cults hated metal in the 80s. That was like the satanic panic period. This is like a Jesus freak LSD cult. Oh, okay. Not like a, we're going to make an example of this person for listening to metal. Right. Nothing it's like that. more they're on their own psychedelic trip and detached from reality. And Oh my God. The main cult leader like basically thinks that he is Jesus on earth and all this stuff. Uh, So they kidnap and murder this woman and in a classic like revenge narrative style, the rest of the film is Nick Cage like hunting them down. But that all sounds like pretty standard for that genre. Like the revenge genre, the woman dies early and Nick Cage would get the revenge and you know, hooray revenge movies with him. This movie is so different than that stuff, though. Like, it's so convincingly psychedelic. Like, you know how we were talking about in Deathgasm? There's that scene where it looks like the guy's on top of a mountain 
and it looks like a heavy metal album cover. Right, like a Man of War album cover with like all the chicks like by his feet. This entire movie feels like that. Ooh. Like it's got this kind of like D&D aesthetic to it where it feels like fantasy, but everything's like really dark. The the screen's just like intense red and intense blues. Uh, it like sears your eyes almost. Wow, this sounds very... And you saw this in theaters? Mm-hmm. It's playing abroad uh, oh. for this week. Uh, and it's already on video on demand too, but oh. you really need to see it in the theater. That sounds like a great experience. Really loud slow doom metal beats <laughs> uh, and whenever those aren't playing like really heavy synth uh washes there's these demonic bikers that he has to kill that are like definitely not human but you never get to figure out what they are and there's like a chainsaw duel and none of it feels good like you know sometimes in a revenge movie you're supposed to be like hell yeah get him back and this one like his grief over losing this woman is just so gross and sad and like uh it just gets worse and just makes you feel terrible but it's such an like an immensely beautiful overwhelming movie definitely one of my favorite things i've seen all year oh so if you don't get to catch it abroad before it disappears like definitely watch it at home like, this sounds very crazy yeah it's nuts um it's a little slow though like I'm i could see how trying this... to picture him as in the last couple of movies i've seen him in and he's like has like a partner or is in a relationship he's the dad and he has glasses and he's balding did you see Mom and Dad from this year? Yeah, yeah. So, which was great. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, I think people so were. That's so interesting. That's like seems like a very different role for him, at least like from what he's been doing lately. I think people were expecting that Mom and Dad role from him, where he's just like amped up to eleven the whole time. Yeah. People were like going there to laugh, and he has moments like that. Like there are a few like really ridiculous like laugh out loud moments. Uh huh. But for the most part, he's like really giving his all, and it's like. Like emotionally vulnerable. It's like a macho movie genre, but his reactions and the way he's carrying himself is not macho at all. He's genuinely a great actor whenever he wants to be. I think there's just certain movies that like he has that, you know, there he has this like reputation of just being ridiculous and people go to be like, oh, Nick Cage, funny. But this is kind of sounds like he kind of really tried. Yeah. And he does both. Like he has, you know, and mom and dad, you know, he sings the honk the hokey pokey and destroys the billiard table for like three and a half minutes. Yes. He has a couple scenes like that in here, but it's mixed with him doing his like real acting stuff. Oh, wow. I really want to see this. Just like overwhelming in that way. Like everything is cranked up. Like nothing feels normal. Mm -hmm. Like every single exchange just feels like so overwhelming, but it is slow. Like I, I, that description makes it sound like it's a nonstop party. It's not a party movie. Like it kind of just like you slowly sink into the mud and like choke on it. Okay. Um. <laughs> Which is okay. Like I feel like sometimes whenever a movie is just kind of like, like over and over again, and you don't have a chance to breathe. It's so exhausting to watch. Yeah. So this is like nice to hear that it doesn't like that. Actually, this will fit in with the themes of what we're talking about later, but I've been updating the website with this newer feature like every Thursday I've been posting what movies are playing around town. So like if perfect blue or like Mandy are only going to play for a few days and it looks like something crazy. Like I've been putting that. Yeah. On I've been reading. That's page. been very, very helpful. Yeah. Cause it's so hard to like go to like Fandango or something and like kind of look daily at what's going on it's and what's worth going to see. Yeah, exactly. And that's at the top of the page at swampflix.com. It says now playing. Later in the show, our friend Cindy Miller, who is in Crew Divine with Brittany, me, Cece, and Virginia, is going to come and talk about like what the indie movie scene used to look like here in the like 70s and 80s, which I honestly have no idea what that's going to be like. <laughs> I'm excited and terrified. But I think Mandy kind of fits in with that vibe. Like 
just like slow, weird, like what the fuck did I just watch kind of uh, <laughs> cinema, you know? Cool. And that's a lot of the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about today. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. Music, colorful costumes, joie de vie. A world that was like my childhood. The tea parties, the dancers in our ballroom. My beautiful mother, she's flirting with the men, and she's waving her fan so fast. It was just like a blur. The Mozart being played on the piano. That's the world I wanted Cosi Van Tute to capture, uh, to recapture. I wanted it to be beautiful. It was supposed to make us forget this place. Cosi Van Tute's world. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. Uh, it was Brittany's turn to pick a movie for me to watch. Uh, what did we watch? We watched Cosi. It's a 1996 Australian film, and since we were kind of on an Australian kick, I kept thinking about this movie, especially when we did the last episode with the ABBA films and Muriel's Wedding. And um, this, because this is an Australian movie that also stars Tony Collette. And Rachel Griffiths. And Rachel Griffiths, yeah. And it's also released by Miramax. And if you look at the DVD cover of Cosi, it's, it's the, the same, same color scheme. Yeah, it's like a white backdrop with Tony Collette making a face and these like confetti, uh, confetti falling. It's like <laughs> you're right. Miramax trying to like recapture that Muriel's wedding well, magic. They were made in the same year. Oh, if really? I'm not mistaken. Right? Or is it 1994? I Shit. think this one's slightly after Miro's Wedding, but that, that's at least when it was released but here. But you can tell they were really trying to play off of Toni Collette, because she doesn't really have a major role in this movie, but on like the main movie cover, her face covers the entire cover, but she's literally not really in this that much. Yeah, that should have been Rachel Griffith's Time to Shine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. Right. So, Cosi, um, it's... A movie that is actually based on a play by um, Louis Nora, and he's a famous Australian playwright. So it kind of has that kind of live performance vibe to it. But it's a, about this guy, Louis, and he's played by Ben Mendelsohn. And I know him because I love that Netflix series um, Bloodline, mm. and he is the um, junkie brother in Bloodline. I looked him up. What else does he play? He's like in Star Wars recently, and <laughs> I've seen him in a couple of things. It's not somebody I really like pay that much attention to. Gotcha. But yeah. Maybe he has been in other stuff, but that's the only thing I could think of. I'm like, oh god, Bloodline guy. The minute I saw him, so Lewis lives with his girlfriend, who is Rachel Griffiths, and she's this law student, um, and he's unemployed. So already there's that situation occurring, and he goes and lands a job um, directing a variety show at a mental hospital. And whenever he meets the patients that are going to be in the variety show, Roy, who's like probably my favorite character in this whole movie, is like, we're going to be doing an opera. Cosi van tutte. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, what? Oh, we're not doing an opera. Like that involves singing. That involves speaking Italian. It's just not going to happen. Extravagant stage design. Right. But I think like Roy's passion for it, and he just kind of like takes over, and he's like, "We're doing this," and Lewis is like, "Well, um, okay." Yeah, he kind of like <laughs> takes over directing. He doesn't really let Roy do most of the work. <laughs> right. It's very funny because um, 
whenever he first meets Lewis, he's like, oh, you and I, like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. <laughs> and he starts like calling him Jerry <laughs> throughout the movie. So basically they're putting on a performance or an opera performance of Mozart's um, Cosi uh, Fontute, which is an opera about these two sisters who have fiancés that fake going off to war. And then the fiancés come, they're like, yeah, we're going to war. And they come back disguised as Albanians to test their fiancés' um, fidelity. So. And then sort of drive them to cheat by, like, through their suspicions. <laughs> right. Or they, like, lose their girlfriends because they, like, trick them or something like that. Yeah. It's supposed to be, like, a really complex opera. Like, it's not an easy one to stage. It's right. kind of the joke behind the fact that this, like, ragtap group of mentally unstable people are going to be doing it. It's very intense opera. Yeah. <laughs> so he, Lewis, while he's like directing this opera, he gets to really like know all of these patients on an individual level and a lot of like interesting friendships blossom. And it's really nice because in the movie and also like in life itself, whenever people look at a group of people at a mental facility, it's like, oh, mental people, mental patients. Like they don't see them as each an individual person with a story, with a life. Um, so I kind of like how this movie kind of brought light to that issue. And he even develops a little bit of a romantic relationship with Miss Tony Collette, who's like super goth. Yeah, she looks like she's <laughs> an extra from the craft. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. She looks like Feruza Balk. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so it's worth watching the movie to see the way she's dressed anyway. So one of the patients is a pyromaniac. And he lights there. There's a building with the stage and everything like that. There's sort of like a drama building at the facility. And he lights it on fire and the whole thing burns down. So it's like all this hard work they put into like making this production is just gone. So the head of the facility is super pissed off. And he kind of fires Lewis. And this um, another person takes over and they're like, we're doing a variety show. Like, this is ridiculous. And then... That whole the show must go on attitude comes out and Lewis kind of sneaks in the facility at night and the patients wake up. And so Lewis sneaks in at night to the um, facility and everyone wakes up and they sneak out of their rooms and they go and they practice Kosi. And they're trying to basically do a secret production of it. So whenever the variety show happens, they're actually going to perform Kosi instead. So how did you like this movie? (laughs) Uh, kind of a mixed bag for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, early on, it felt like a weird comedy where you were like laughing at the like eccentricities of these like mental patients, mm-hmm. and sort of the joke was like how it would just like devolve into incoherent yelling as they were like trying to s- practice or like get themselves together to even talk about how they were going to stage the play. Mm-hmm. It's them just sort of yelling, and all their ticks are going off. And it felt like I was supposed to be laughing at, like, how quirky they were. And then later, I started to get a hold of, like, how tragic each character was. Like you said, like, you get more time to meet each person individually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it just took me a while to, like, get on that wavelength. Because I I get that. Like, at the beginning, it probably seems like, oh, this is making fun of people's mental illnesses. Yeah. (laughs) Or, I don't know, they did this a little bit in The Dressmaker, too. We recently talked about that because it was like an Australian, Australian comedy. Movie. Yeah, and there's like a lot of like finding dark humor in people's like tragic mental issues. Mm-hmm. And I felt like in this one, it was like dialed so loud. Like <laughs> everyone's just like practically just yelling at each other at all times. But once the movie sort of calmed down and sank into each person, I started growing on it. And also there's like this 
sort of built-in satisfaction to the like let's put on a show right. storytelling structure. So like by the end where they're like staging the actual opera with no singing. <laughs> And it, it's like all these handmade costumes and sets, and they put on this like really extravagant show. It's even amazing. It's all very DIY. They're, um, all the, the the two sisters, their dresses are just like carts with wheels on it. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I remember a lot of flowers and just like masks that show someone's two faces when they're like, the Albanian brothers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very like <laughs> charming. Watching like a DIY version of this like high art opera. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's hard not to feel like a satisfaction at the end. Like they really pulled it off. They put the, put, right. put on a show. And they were like, they impressed all these people who were like super, super judgmental about them doing an opera. Like, oh, you can't do this. It's not going to work out. And then it really did. Yeah. That part feels really good. Yeah. And I also like the dynamic of the guy's home life, Ben Mendelsohn's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause he has this, you know, girlfriend he lives with played by Rachel Griffiths. And yeah. she's this like, 90s feminist uh, character. So she fucking hates this play. Yeah. The play is like really misogynistic and backwards to him. And he has a buddy who ends up living with them. Who's like this pretentious artsy type. Uh, (laughs) And he's pretty much like a misogynist asshole. Yeah. Uh, So I like the tension between those three characters, like living in the same house. And it feels like the movie's struggling with some kind of like gender issues there, Mm -hmm. especially the way that he is suspicious of his girlfriend is cheating on him kind of like in the play. Right. And he himself was having this sort of like emotional affair with Tony Collette mm-hmm. that he th- that doesn't go too far. No, but he lets it go further than he should. Right. Especially since he's like in a position of power as like, you know, a- an employee of the institution where she's like hospitalized. Right. So yeah, there's some interesting mirroring with how the play deals with gender politics and they update it to this like nineties feminism feel. That's a little quaint now, but not too bad. And I found all that very interesting. Mm -hmm. But it just, it took me a while to get over just how loud and obnoxious the like humor was in the first like 20 minutes or so. Yeah, it's it's a little intense. And that's how I felt like when I watched this film in the past, like I thought that Roy was so annoying. And then like watching it more recently, like he cracked me up so much the entire time i think it's because he was very like loud but there's something about like the way he talks or like the facial expressions he makes like he's such like this like mad artist where he's just so passionate about everything and like he's very expressive about it and i just think it's so funny the way it's his a very mannerisms are. particular way of talking that's not like how anyone else talks like right. yeah it's kind of like <laughs> there's no space between his words like they all just kind of keep going and the sentences run into each other. I don't know if this other. is a thing, but there's an Australian TV show that I started to watch that I'm obsessed with. And there's actually movies to it that I just found out about, which I'm excited to watch. But it's called Kath and Kim. And it's a, a mother-daughter duo, but they're two Australian comedians that are the same age. And one dresses up like she's this... Um, woman in her 50s that's obsessed with like 80s culture and then the other dresses like a teenager (laughs) and it's super funny but in Kath and Kim there's two characters that talk a lot like Roy oh weird and they're like oh welcome to the like they talk like this and they're it's like everything kind of sounds like one word so I don't know if that's like there's maybe um a certain area of Australia where people talk like that. Cause it kind of seems like, Oh, like they were like kind of making fun of it in Kath and Kim. And it's kind of how Roy's accent was something I don't understand. It's almost like they're like 
pretending to be like rich or something. Like he's yeah. trying to like sound like an important theater. And that's the two women and Kath and Kim. It's like these like snobby ladies that work at this like department store, mm-hmm. and they kind of speak like that. So maybe that's where his. And I think <laughs> there's like a really like effective tragedy to that too, where he talks about why he wanted to do cozy in the first place Mm -hmm. and he talks about like these like parties that his mother used to throw and Mm -hmm. like he had this very romantic illusion of like what his adult life was going to be and obviously living in a mental institution was not what that image was a lot of like visions of grandeur yeah kind of stuff so the stress of the vision in his mind not meeting the actual standards that they can pull off on the stage Mm -hmm. uh, are obviously really frustrating and distressing to him Uh uh-huh and yeah there's a really like subtle tragedy to that that you wouldn't expect in the first act when it feels like he's just like this caricature see i think the movie just requires a little bit of like good faith in the first act you know (laughs) like it's like okay we're gonna show you how ridiculous these people are from like an an outsider's point of view because you have this like young theater director guy like what am i even doing here who are these people i think the movie almost takes that point of view too where it's like very distanced and then over time, you sort of like feel like you know those people individually, and they all have very well-defined personalities that aren't just their, you know, eccentric tics and right. uh, loud, explosive uh, blow-ups between each other <laughs> or raps. Oh uh, yeah, true. <laughs> the pyromaniac also raps. I, th- I think maybe the pyromaniac character is the one guy we don't really get a like vulnerable moment from. No, he's, he's, he's just kind of horrible. He turns into like almost a villain by yeah. the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, it sounds like it wasn't a bust. No, it's not a bust. And yeah, actually, when we were watching it, CC recommended this other movie to me called Hunky Dory. Have you ever seen that? Oh, with Minnie Driver. Yeah, yeah. That one's got a similar kind of similar vibe, but yeah, like students and and they're putting on like a play, and it ends up being this sort of like grand DIY spectacle uh-huh. that you don't think they could pull oh, off. That's such a good. Uh, yeah, I didn't even make that connection, but that is pretty similar yeah I, I do find that very satisfying yeah like, i don't think a movie would have to be pretty bad to like ruin the like satisfaction of that you know yeah so yeah i was really charmed by like the opera part of this particularly like i thought that was really well staged and mm-hmm. pretty convincing like i feel like someone could do that like was there anything like unbelievable at the end when they're like actually doing cozy that they wouldn't be able to do that <laughs> no, yeah good. and i like it because like there's it's a play Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a play they made into a movie, so it's fun. I, w- I think it'd be really fun to see Kosi as a play. Yeah, that would <laughs> be it's interesting. It's a play within a play. Yeah, and in the in the movie, they do another play within a play that's like really bad theater, and it's like people who are supposed to be good at theater putting oh, on like a really God. awful play. Yeah, the, oh, the horrible friend. Yeah, and these people with like less means and less training put on a much better show. I loved all their reactions to that performance. Like this is big, like professional play that's happening and they're all cracking up and like eye rolling about how like horrible it is. Yeah. And everyone else in the audience is like, Oh wow, this is fabulous. And they're like one, um, I can't think of the character's name, but she's blonde and she's always like eating. Mm-hmm. She's super, super funny. Um, she's like cracking up the whole time and there's a lot of like confused looks in their faces like, Oh, is this supposed to be good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes them kind of the art underdogs in this like art world yeah. to be taken seriously for like their art that they'd make. And it's actually right. like way better art. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's really like hard to not be won over by, you know? True. True.
course we are challenging nature itself and it hits back. It just hits back, that's all. And that's grandiose about it. And we have to, to accept that it is much stronger than we are. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic. I see it more full of obscenity. It's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Uh, joining Brittany and I is Cindy Miller. Hi. Uh, you do drag locally as CCV DeMinth? Yes, I do. And you're also yeah. in Crew Divine with us. We only did, what, two years so far? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you put us all to shame this year <laughs> in, like, full divine drag. I'm starting to see some of our photos pop up in far-flung places. Like, people have seen a photo of me in front of the pro the you know, religious protesters, and it, like, someone in San Francisco reposted it. So that's kind of... It's beautiful. That's kind of cool. Right. Yeah, that's a great image. And we asked you... I ran into you at, like, a, a screening of Blood Diner, the Jackie Kong movie. All right. Uh, and I asked you, what did you want to do for this podcast episode? Um, and you said you wanted to do 80s and 70s New Orleans, like, film screening culture? It, it, and it's not just New Orleans. I think probably worldwide... In the 70s and 80s, when, you know, I was a very young adult, um, there was a whole scene, you know, almost kind of like the punk rock scene. You'd go out to the latest art film and see all your friends there. And there were several theaters in New Orleans, the Pit, the Britannia, and the place that's now One-Eyed Jacks used to be the Toulouse Theater. And it was a, you know, they were repertory theaters. And... At the time, there were tons of bizarre art films and cult films that came from all over the world that, you know, that we'd see and then maybe later learn about in film school. Some of us went to film school. But um, I think um, MTV kind of ended that era. <laughs> well, I'm kind of curious, like The Pit or the Toulouse one maybe, like the comparable things we have now are like zeitgeist which is basically like an art gallery space with like just a projector screen and then there's like the broad which is like a more legit theater and, yeah and the and the broad still is a little more first run than things were back then zeitgeist is the same idea except it's not an actual theater it's, okay it's an okay space but you i'm talking about being able to see this in a real theater experience so the pit and, uh, was like more like a like a real theater the pit was in was a real i don't do do you remember seeing a mall in metairie it's you know the martin wine cellar on elmere on, mm -hmm. on veterans that was a movie theater before it was a wine mm -hmm. cellar and um so it was a small single unit theater which are of course all gone now except for the britannia and um even the even that one that was Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's where you went to see Rocky Horror Picture Show on Friday nights. The Pit also did Rocky Horror Picture Show, but they were you know small single standing theaters, and um, there was a thing then. It was a distribution system because I, you know, in my early twenties moved to San Francisco to go to film school. 
there was a similar theater there called the Strand, and I couldn't help but notice that their calendar looked exactly like the Britannia's calendar. And I asked the guy, I ran the place about it, and he said, yeah, the distribution company is out of San Antonio, and we're on like a circuit where they send these films around to the different repertory theaters, and we get a little monthly calendar. But the films would run one or two days. You had to get in there and see them when they were there, and then they were gone. But there was, all, you know, everything, of, you know, Yodorowsky, El Topo, Santa Sangre, those kind of things you'd see. Bergman, you know, pretty much all the old European art film standards, and then things like John Waters would pop up there too. And you'll see stuff like that at the Britannia every now and then, but like you said, it's not like a full repertory theater. Like they, no, They're still going to have Black Panther the first day it comes out. that's how they make their money. Right. Yeah. And then they'll like, you know, midnight screenings or like early 10 a.m. show like an older film. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a couple John Waters movies there, always with walkouts, which I always find really funny. It's like this movie's been out for like forty years. Like, how do you not know what you're getting oh, into? On uh, during decadence, I was asked to make an appearance. Um, do you know what Oxie Dixie is on Canal Street? Oh, that's like the kava drinks yeah, and like I, CBD I it's, oil. It's like the edibles. Malaco Milk Bar yeah. place. It's kind of funky, painted, and it's yeah. really cute. And um, the guys there decided to screen um, Pink Flamingos during oh. decadence. And so, um, you know, I was talking to him, he's like, oh, if you can come and be here. So I'm like, yeah, I'll come. I'll just give me, I've been wanting to try the Cray Tom. Just give me some of that stuff and I'll do it. So <laughs> I go and everyone there is pretty much in their 20s. And I noticed a lot of them were looking at me like they had no clue why I was dressed like that. Then after they watched the movie, you know, everybody was coming up to me, oh my God. You know, so obviously most of these 20-somethings had no clue about the movie. But I was surprised at how many of, you know, I don't think anybody walked out, but there were so many gasps. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it, 45 years? Yeah. 45 years later, they were still shocked. And it wasn't just the poop scene. It was a lot of the scenes (laughs) that, you know, these kids, and these, you know, were kids that were laying around smoking out of plastic bags and stuff. So it wasn't, (laughs) you know, I don't think they were like the sheltered people. They've probably seen a lot. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting. There were like walkouts at at uh, Noma last year too, because you got really? hired there uh, to do pretty much the same thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. and and my twenty two year old daughter was there, and there was a couple of scenes she found disturbing, right? A little bit, but that's kind of purposeful, yeah. I think. Oh like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's a good review. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I guess it's good that people aren't completely shell shocked to filth, even at this you know point in yeah. human existence. <laughs> I was listening to the commentary for Multiple Maniacs the other day, and he was talking about like how once all like hardcore pornography was legalized, pretty much like he didn't feel the need to do that stuff anymore. He's like, "What's the point of uh, trying to shock people? Like everything's legal now, so and and it's actually in their living room now, so right. even more so. And um, you know, I think that's kind of would put an end, and it's not just an end to the art film venue scene i think first cable and now streaming video kind of put an end to cinematic art film because the if you ask me the comparable thing now are the series that are on the streaming networks like netflix and prime i don't know i think broaden has pretty um every now and then they have some 
an odd thing, but there's not just a, it's not just coming out all the time like it was yeah. in the 70s It's and like 80s. a little on the rare side. Like you have to catch it. It might be like one showing this one night and then it goes away and it's back to everything else. Yeah, the film Mandy that's playing there right now is like very much in that shocking slow descent into hell really uh, yeah just like overwhelms you with like lights and sounds and just like it's a full is it art new? house experience yeah it just came out like this week but most theaters in the country that are getting it got it for like one night and broad is like one of the few that's playing it for like a full week mm, uh so yeah you have to like that. catch it while it's there right. you know yeah. it's like very transient and i th- think the interesting thing about the john Waters stuff too is on that same multiple maniacs commentary, he talked about how the grindhouse circuit that would play like the gross out horror movies and the art film, like Bergman stuff you were talking about were like kind of separate. And what he wanted to do was to bring the grindhouse mm-hmm. aesthetic to the art house movies. And, I, and eventually sort of that's funny. Cause a lot of those movie theaters, that's, I think at, at a certain point they were trying to make the money and that's what they brought in to draw, you know, a wider audience in. So you'd have, you know, like Ingmar Bergman one night and um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre the <laughs> next night, which is, pro- you know, they're probably both as upsetting in different ways, you know, purposely upsetting in different ways. One of the movies you picked for us to watch today was Caligula, mm-hmm. which uh, I think that's kind of halfway between those, like, you know, grindhouse porno uh, theaters and, like, artsy-fartsy media. Well, and there's a good reason for that. Because, um, you know, they had Tinto Brass, the original director, was a, an art house, more or less, di- Ita- Italian director. And then the, the money backer was Bob Guccione, the publisher of Penthouse. Yeah. And he kind of uh, really wanted to put his own stamp on the film. In fact, he hijacked the film and shot his own scenes and edited and Tinto Brass ended up you know, kind of stepping back and removing himself from most of the film. So it was kind of like really a mashup of kind of a highbrow art film and like the lowest brow, you know, Benny Hill titty show kind of a thing almost. <laughs> he also like made it way more hetero too, right? Like the Gore Vidal script was a lot more oh, I like... I never, you know, I never thought about that. Yeah. I guess that was important then. <laughs> <laughs> And there, there is like a lot of like on screen bisexual like activity in the movie. It There's shy pretty away much from every that. sexual activity. Yeah. In the movie, but um, I don't know if they, I don't remember if they explained this in the movie. But I learned something really funny the other day. You know, Caligula's name was not Caligula. He was Gaius Caesar, and it would be like if. A hundred years from now, people referred to Donald Trump as Cheeto Lini. Right. It was like a really derogative nickname because when he was a little kid, they dressed him up like a mini me stormtrooper, and he had the boots, and that's what uh, the boots were, Caliga. So his nickname kind of meant like Bootsy or little boots or something, and he, mm. and that's what he's known as in history, which probably would have, you know, not gone down well with him <laughs> from the. I get and the movie kind of starts off with like Peter O'Toole playing like the Emperor Caesar that he takes over for and he makes him perform like as kind of a clown to entertain his uh yeah his, like, fish. yeah it, you know it's it, there's no surprise that he turned out as crazy as he did it's hard to realize too that 
you know, what period of time this was. I don't know. I have a real splotchy worldview in terms of history. But it was he was only the third Caesar. So this is just barely like 20 years after Jesus Christ. So mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, I still want to think that all this is happening like in the 16, 1700s, but it's not. It's like super ancient history. Yeah, they really only tell you like pagan Rome is like the only yeah. uh, place setting you get at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> And yeah, it starts with like a nightmare sequence that is like almost pagan rituals of just orgies of people with all kinds of different genitalia and like sort of impossible bodies in this like weird mix where everyone's like, like you said, doing every sexual act you can imagine in a big jumble. Uh, it reminded me a lot of uh, Society, that 80s horror movie. That's like, I think the part of the movie I liked the most was when they have all these like, you know, like people that had like, you know. 20 eyes on their face or whatever just yeah. like a mouth in a weird spot that was pretty creative or even like eyes wide shut when they have mm-hmm. the you know that ritual scene they have the the mask with the distorted faces it's not so much whole distorted they're you know, I have that's a whole nother <laughs> for a whole nother day there I, I think the difference yeah. with the eyes wide shut too is that that one's like pretending it's sort of above being smut like it's like a very cold artsy movie where they go into these like sort of like sexual id scenarios but they don't actually pull the trigger on showing sex where like Caligula is basically just pornography for like large stretches well you know what happened with that movie it's not the movie that Kubrick intended to make exactly because the studio wanted to be able to release it with an R rating and his version would have been an NC-17 so they had to camouflage a lot of the sex and tone things down and my suspicion i could be totally wrong is that kidman and cruz hijacked that whole situation and at that point in his life kubrick was not strong enough to beat them down the way he <laughs> might have when he had been younger but i don't you know well, he basically died before like the final he, cut yeah, was he, made, he yeah. died right right before the movie came out and i've seen movies recently that do this kind of thing uh, this movie last year called we are the flesh that have made Brittany listen to me go on about a few times. Still <laughs> terrified to watch yeah. it, but I do want to see it. But yeah, it's oh, it's basically like these. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about any new things. I only know about old stuff. <laughs> it kind of sounds how I'm assuming the movie feels like. Yeah, it's like we these are like the flesh. siblings in like this Mexican cave, uh, and it feels like the uh, like dawn of time, and they're having like incestuous sex. And like weird uh, orgies sort of break out. You don't know where those people are coming from. And it's just like the mm. sort of like society devolving and becoming like this like base animal thing again. I feel like Caligula sort of goes for that. And then sometimes it sort of loses that stage play feel and just becomes like regular hardcore porn. Um, <laughs> like goes in and out. And I'm going to make a bold statement here. <laughs> but I think before Christianity watered down true religion that sexuality was a mystic experience and it wasn't mm-hmm. like a you know kind of this, this doesn't it didn't have the sordid overtones that it has today so that was probably part of it too yeah but uh, we're talking about this movie like it's like non-stop yeah. like that like it's kind of like a slow like stage play kind of feel where they're, people are giving this sort of almost Shakespearean dialogue. Oh my uh, God. It's like, it's a long, slow, quiet movie. And then just sort of erupts in these orgies every now and then, you know, I kind of feel like it got, I mean, of course it got more aggressive, especially with like a lot of the sexual things occurring. Like once he started turning mad after that, like really um, difficult to watch rape scene. Yeah. Um, 
I feel like after that, a lot of the acts seem to be more like aggressive, <laughs> like, especially after like the he shoved his hand in like a thing of lard and like fisted a guy. Yeah. He like rapes a wife and a groom on yeah. their wedding day to yeah. bless them. And I, yeah, the sort of like lesson of Caligula is like absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. And that was uh, like a quote in the beginning, right? Right. And then, but do you really <laughs> need like, Bible. do you really need like three hours to get that idea across? Like, I feel like the movie's like trying to make it feel important. Uh, and it's like this conscious effort to like bring porn into like mainstream art. Well, I think, yeah, Guccione had a, a horse in that race for sure. So makes sense. <laughs> if you ever get a chance to catch the, uh, and I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere, Malcolm McDowell was on David Letterman talking about the making of the film a lot. And oh, it wow. was, um, it is pretty hysterical. He, he has nothing but disregard for the entire experience <laughs> and the finished product. But um, he had a lot of funny stories about it. He was so good in it. Yeah. He's good he's in great. everything. Yeah. Like, I was telling Brandon There's earlier, nothing, like, he's good so good at being, like, a villainous character. Like, this reminded me a lot of his role in Cat People. Oh, yeah. Um, But, yeah. Sexual I can't picture predator. anybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Incest. All that good stuff. But I was really surprised with Helen Mirren. Oh, yeah. I'm, like, really unfamiliar with her career, like, prior to, like... She was a Shakespearean stage actor before Caligula. Mm-hmm. I think that was maybe her first big movie role. Really? Yeah, so beautiful too. Okay, so like this movie comes in a time where that felt like a real possibility that like porn would cross over. Because this is like after Deep Throat like made a ton of money and like it became like a date night thing for people in like New York. The right, to sexual go. <laughs> revolution had just come about and so now it wasn't as hard for people to, you know, even think that they could go see something like this and not be considered a, a complete perv i guess yeah it's like a almost like a sophisticated thing yeah. to do like people would like get but. dressed up and go out like <laughs> oh that's after a, dinner you know that was the other thing about the art film scene for a long time like in the 60s it was kind of like a um innuendo for a smutty film because a lot of these european films had some nudity in them that you'd never see in an american film and so, um, you know, some people, I think, had like a spurious motivation to go see the, <laughs> the art films. That was like Perhaps. how that ha- the porn got legalized, right? Like they'd have like, I'm Curious Yellow play in the theater mm-hmm. and like, okay, so it's okay to show nudity because it's an artsy movie. Why can't we make an artsy American movie that shows nudity? And they sort of like yeah. push the envelope more and more until like, I feel like Caligula is kind of the swan song of that. Like this is a pretty big, expensive stab at crossing over and I think it kind of failed no I don't think it played in any and I'm thinking of you know I remember it coming out I don't recall it playing at any commercial theater I think it still was at like the art houses do you think that was the goal um I imagine you know I'd have to find out more about what the distribution deal that was going down with Guccione at the time but um I don't know if he wanted to keep it to where he gave himself more importance that he was an artist or if he wanted to keep it to where he was able to broadcast his, you know, regular fare more widely. Both those things, I think, were probably important to him. Right around this time, maybe a little later, he also published a magazine that was kind of like the equivalent of Wired, it was like the first thing ever, Omni Magazine. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so he was into a lot of... 
other things besides just, you know, being a smut meister, <laughs> I guess. He's not like the guy who did Screw Magazine where, like, yeah, he was only was pushing the smut, yeah. You know, if you see an interview with him, he, he kind of seems not too different from that, but... Well, you know, this is, it's kind of like, um, who made the, the King Kong deal, Dino De Laurentiis. It was weirdly kind of the same thing. Like he wanted to make a big monster disaster movie that was in style at the time, but I think he was trying to art, arty tarty that up (laughs) too. So it was just like a thing guys did to give themselves more, um, credibility or something at the time. I gotta say I loved this movie for that exact thing where it's like <laughs> yeah. I love that clash of like really pretentious art sensibilities but also just admitting to yourself like all you really want is the cheap thrills like sex and gore <laughs> like I yeah. love it when people sort of like mix those two aesthetics together I don't think they need to be as separate as they are I saw an interview with Guccione once and he was complaining that Tinto Brass brought in like the ugliest woman he could find in Italy. And so he snuck in a whole bunch of penthouse playmates to film a, a lot of the scenes. But Tinto Brass was probably just trying to find women that looked like they would have been normal women in that time right. frame to make it like a realistic version. Huh? Yeah. So, and it was yeah. funny because you could tell like some of the women had like implants and <laughs> I thought that was yeah. so funny though. Yeah, there's like some like seventies <laughs> porn stars just mixing in with like the more historically accurate right, characters. Right. And there's a lot of actors in the movie, like a lot of extras and these huge sets, especially the senators' wives orgy oh, that scene on yeah. the boat is a ton of people. Doesn't he make like a weird comment about this lady who has like really small breasts and he's like, She has walnut titties, like she can't be on this boat. Yeah, she's like shaming like the that. senator for having like a non-voluptuous wife. <laughs> right. Yeah. What did you think of the movie, like, as a movie, Brittany? I don't know. Like, I didn't find it to be, like... I mean, it was, like, shocking, but not, like, as super shocking as, like, I guess a John Waters movie or anything like that. I was just like, okay, like, I saw it once. And you just see it happen, like, you know, the sex acts happening over and over again. And I'm like, oh. But, like, after I watched it, I felt so sophisticated. <laughs> I was like, I just watched Caligula. <laughs> like, it felt good. There's <laughs> almost like a stunt aspect to it. It's like, wow, they really dared to it do that. It was such a beautiful set, though. Like, especially, like, yeah. like the headpieces that Helen Mirren's character would wear and, like, all these, like, beautiful costumes. Like, ugh, that was, that when, was pretty awesome. When you see spectacles like this, and it, it definitely... Um, Fitzcarraldo the same mm-hmm. it's just shocking to you that somebody can manage to put something together on a scale like that yeah I have a friend right now with a group of us have been trying for like five years to get this little documentary about the early punk rock scene in New Orleans made and it, you know it's just such a teeny little movie and it's one thing after another after another after another you know I don't know if it'll ever get made there's an Indiegogo for it right now but um yeah, when I see this guy struggle so hard with just these little banal problems, I mm-hmm. can't imagine how, you know, one person held something of that magnitude. Yeah. That's why we're, like, not very hard on movies, I don't think. Because we, like, recognize, like, how hard it is to make one yeah. in the first place. Like, I couldn't do, like, even, like, 2% of what these people do. It takes, like, hundreds of people <laughs> even to make, like, the worst movie, yeah. which is yeah. kind of mind-boggling. I think that might be the difference between how art films are now and how they were back then is the funding. There are a lot of really weird 
just out there art films being made right now, but even after getting them made, getting the money for distribution so people even know that they're out, I think is a large part of the problem. Like that movie, We Are the Flesh, that I was talking about earlier, like that played for you know maybe a few days at Zeitgeist, didn't even get like to a real theater, and then it just sort of disappeared. Well, I'm telling you, if, if anybody out there has a pile of cash to blow, if somebody <laughs> made a... There, maybe there is something like this, and I just don't know about it. A streaming channel like Filmstruck, just for the smallest of bizarre movies, I think they'd get zillions of subscribers. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so hard to see. Although I almost hate to encourage people to watch things like that home alone because I think sitting in a theater with other people around you is part of the experience for a lot of these films um, too. Well, the two movies you picked too, like Caligula and Fitzcarraldo, like they're very slow moving I think being in the theater where you're not allowed to like look away I think is kind of part of it because when you're at your house especially now you have like a cell phone or so a many laptop distractions. yeah it's so very funny to like wander off I'm I'm hosting a American horror story viewing party and afterwards they play video games so and I have like really strong opinions about American horror story I think that a lot of people don't realize that it's just rapid fire references to movies from birth of a nation on up and unless you're sitting there just like catching certain little things you mm -hmm. miss a lot of them so i ha you know after the party i have to go home and watch it again a few times to see what i miss do you think okay i'm, tr I'm trying to think of how to word this but okay when we saw blood diner it was a very rowdy screening and that kind yes. of felt like an old style like over-the-top horror midnight screening. People are drunk and almost yelling and over... And they even had, like, the will, the castle thing with the drag queen dressed like the the queen walking around. It was crazy. Yeah. There's a lady who was obviously on meth uh, who was dancing to the lyrics of the movie. Yeah. It, it was insane. <laughs> yeah. Very wild night. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if that kind of environment works well with, like, Caligula and Fitzcarraldo because there's so much space for audience participation... Like, you can sort of, like, yell and talk over the movie because there's all these, like, lulls in between yeah. the sort of, like, stunts. And I do remember things like that happened in a lot of the films I went to. And, and you know, there were people we'd see that weren't, that that's the only place where there was, like, a guy called the Human Pickle who was at every, <laughs> I don't know how we he got this nickname, but, you know, he's he had, like, a pickly-looking face. And he was, like, an older guy. He looked like maybe, like, a 40-year-old guy who still lived at home with mom. And he'd be at all these movies, and he'd be one that would yell out funny <laughs> things in the movies. And then, you know, I, you know, we never saw, never saw him anywhere else except at, at a movie. And um, when I was like eighteen, I went to see this great concert. Gloria Gaynor opened for the Village People, <laughs> and the Human Pickle was there with like, two, <laughs> like a Vegas showgirl on each arm. I'm like, what the hell? It was so crazy. Sounds like he needs his own documentary. Yeah, oh, I, I wish I wish <laughs> I knew who he was. He may have even worked for one of the theaters hmm. for a while too, but I can't remember. Con I have to ask Connor to help. I want to know more about him. Cece and I talked to the um, person who did the uh, drag routine before Blood Diner, Ashitar. Uh, we talked to them after, and they said that was the only time they've ever done drag. Uh, and they helped get the distribution to the thing. And they just happened to be a bartender at that bar. And that's how they got the movie yeah, down here. Yeah, there was a, a local drag queen. Oh, I'm not going to be able to remember her drag name. Who does a lot of shows. And she was involved with that group of people. 
Tasia Balls. I was kind of surprised because, you know, when we first found out it was this place on Frenchman Street, I'm like, well, that's an odd place to have a showing like that. But the whole place was so into it. And I'm kind of hoping they'll have more screenings of, you know, of different things. That wasn't just like a one-time thing. I've seen that more at bars recently. They have like movie night where they're obviously mm-hmm. not paying for distribution rights and they're just like Yeah, but like a lot of like just you know, like those like late night, what are those bars called where you just like speak, like dive, more like dive bar. Yeah, yeah. like not great Like places. the Avenue like, Pub. Redux <laughs> has movie nights. Yeah. And this, where we have the American Horror <laughs> Story is um, Grand Prix on Rampart Street. Uh, you know, in the I don't know when it started, but ASCAP pops into bars to find out if people are using music without paying for it. Probably eventually, oh my god, someone will get busted. Yeah. I hope, I hope not though. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I, I know it is cool. Yeah. Well, Fitzcarraldo was the other movie we watched, um, also from the early '80s, I think '82, mm-hmm. uh, and that's Herzog's movie. And the stunt in that one is that they dragged a gigantic ship over a hill. Uh, supposedly a mountain in the movie, but and it's you know it's based on a true story. But the guy in the true story came to a place between two rivers and completely dismantled the boat and took it across part by part. But mm-hmm. here, you know, they used hidden bulldozers and whatnot to drag this huge steamship over a literal mountain to get to the river on the other side. And um, it's you know when you watch the Phoenix product, it's painstaking. You're feeling for these people. But the making of the movie was, you know, it's such a miracle that that movie got made. Mm-hmm. It's and it and it is a pretty amazing piece of film. Yeah, it's almost incomplete until you watch Burden of Dreams, the Les Blank documentary. About it, you the will you of find it. out more about, all, but not even all the stuff that happened is not even in Burden of Dreams. Yeah. There were, you know, so many people were like gravely injured in the making of it. They had to restart making it twice. They had 40% of it filmed, and Jason Robards was supposed to do the um, Klaus Kinski part, and um, he got dysentery so bad that he couldn't be sent back to the rainforest, so they had to start all over again. And Mick Jagger was supposed to be in that version. He mm-hmm. he was, and they just they just wrote his part out because there was no way to... Re, uh, I, I will that. say I don't think the movie would have been as good without Klaus Kinski in that role. Um, He's so like yeah. iconic in yeah. this role with you know the hair and the look and. Well, he's playing like a madman who wants to bring the opera to the jungle to these like rubber plant, very remote locations, and his madness of like, especially in the scene where he's in the bell tower yelling, "I want my opera house! I want my opera house!" and ringing the town <laughs> bell. Reminded me a lot of like Nick Cage freakouts, and I just don't see any other actor being able to pull that off at that time. And Nick Cage is just on my mind too because he's in that Mandy movie. Uh, they keep oh, really? About. Yeah, he's really right. good in it. That being said, the last place I ever want to be is stuck in a rainforest with Klaus Kinski. But, um, <laughs> it just seems like I mean, especially after watching the documentary, like when they're talking about how hot it was and like how the conditions were so sludgy and it, you didn't know when it would rain and when it wouldn't. Well, it, they had oh the, my God. the second time they had to restart the the indigenous people that they were using mm-hmm. and whose land they were on. And there's a lot of really fucked up things. Can I say that? Yeah. Fucked up things that happened to the indigenous people for the making of this film. But there were also some, some good things. They got some medical care and stuff that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. They were literally beset upon by the, you know, the first tribe that they were working with and 
burnt the whole set down and killed a lot of people and whatnot. And then they had to move to a different part of Peru and go at, you know, go into business with a completely different tribe. Yeah. And there was a lot of political stuff with that tribe as well. That was way on me, weighing on me a lot watching this. Like I didn't like this one as much as Caligula just cause you could see like the real human toll that it took to pull this off. Like, so half of my viewing was like, wow, how'd you do this? And my other half was like, how fucking dare you? Like- yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, it's kind of like seeing something you know is not good, but you're getting something. Like, you would never be able to see those people and the way they live. That's true. In, but, did, you know, did I really need to see that for somebody to even- And to change their lives forever too he like takes them away from their families people are injured it it took five years to make this movie so they were away for long stretches of time so he's like changing the landscape and the culture they did get paid much better than they would have been paid there was a remark that was made about the payment that it was like oh they're getting paid like 350 a day like three dollars and 50 cents but then they were charging them that much to take their pictures. Well, no, there it wasn't the or film was it crew. them that were it charging? Was, or the it people was of someone. Peru? It was someone who came came to the film crew that was doing still photography. Uh-huh. And I don't know that it was you know, I mean they let it go. Yeah. But I don't think he was actually the. Uh, but yeah, they were you know, I'm probably a lot of these people had never seen a camera or a photograph right. before. You could tell they so, were really fascinated by yeah, it. So, so they're like, hey, it's to work for an hour to, <laughs> to get a picture. Uh-huh. Well, okay, so what's kind of impressive about the movie is, like, how large of a scale it is, like, with, like, the full, like, kind of Caligula cast where it's, like, people filling the whole frame. But yeah, <laughs> to pull that off, he has to pay them three fifty a day. And they're on set all the time. Uh-huh. And that's really fucked up because it's like way lower than you'd be paying like an American crew. Than one of those Caligula Probably. chicks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's like paying people under what right. he would pay someone else because he's saying like the relative value to them is higher. I think that's like a pretty half-assed logic way they're, to like shrug off exploitation of your th- workers. This day and age, I don't think would have let uh, a filming like this that happen. wouldn't have slid right yeah. I was thinking about it that would, too well especially when he brings like prostitutes to the uh, filming camp that, to, like, and that's, them that's the burden of dreams and the <laughs> so and the funny. Catholic priest recommends it <laughs> right that was like his validation he's like oh and the, the Catholic priest in the village told me it was okay too he said you know in, in Hollywood <laughs> you never think of doing something like this but apparently here it's going to keep them from raiding the village next door and raping all their women so we it's okay oh my god I, the, the prostitutes seem pretty happy too to be there so i don't know <laughs> yeah she wouldn't sweating <laughs> it's one of those things where like at the end of the day you kind of have to like ask like is it worth it for this is like the idea right. like and it becomes parallel to the actual movie like herzog's dream to film this ridiculous film is paralleled with this other man's dream to bring the opera to the jungle and it's like they're both harming everyone around them to pull off these like yeah. a singular person's vision, you know? Right. And thank goodness um, Les Blank documented that part. My, I mean, I have a episode like this every summer. My favorite scene in Burden of Dreams is he kind of tricked Herzog into going into this almost psychotic rant toward the end of the making of the film. It's full blown summer, and it's just like the ripeness of the jungle is <laughs> warping his mind and 
I live in Laplace and at the, you know, the time this happened, there was a canal behind me and beginning of August, all of a sudden there's like bugs, frogs, lizards. I'm having to cut the grass every single day just to try <laughs> to stay ahead of it. And I, I'm like, I know what he was going through. Like nature <laughs> is, it's, it will get you. It strikes back as like kind of his version. Apparently Klaus Kinski says it's erotic, but Herzog disagrees and thinks it's like obscene yeah. and gross. But he like admires like how oppressive it is. I, I think this is kind of the beginning of Herzog becoming like a human meme in that way. Cause he goes on these like really ridiculous rants about nature's like evil eroticism and the fact that it doesn't want humanity to be alive. That's sort of become like his shtick in the years since is he'll go on these like sort of like verbose rants about that kind of thing. That's a movie that I'm waiting to see made a hundred years in the future. And it's like um, the uh, Jurassic day where the dinosaurs have taken over and people are living in little outcroppings and stuff. You know it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did you see Fitzgeraldo in the theater when it first came out? What was like the environment there? Like was it like a quiet, somber experience or like Yeah, it wasn't there was no rattiness. People it, it's it's fascinating enough that once you get sucked into that, you're not you're you're in it. Yeah. You know, you're not at least I wasn't. You're not, you know, some movies you're you're kind of in the movie, but you're also outside making your own little commentary. Once you start watching this movie, mm-hmm. you are completely there. So, yeah, I, you know, and it's a long time ago, but from what I remember, it and it was like silence after, a long time after. Even though it was a jubilant ending at the end, sort mm-hmm. of. I think people were, were kind of worn out from watching the movie, honestly. Like, it feels like a workout. Like, not in a bad way. Like, I was just kind of... I didn't know, like, what kind of movie it was going into it because I've never watched it before. And for some reason, I thought it was going to have a horror element to it. Especially that part when he wakes up and he's surrounded by all these, like, native kids. It kind of reminded me of, like, a suddenly last summer situation. (laughs) I'm like, are they going to kill him? (laughs) But it never happened. And then I guess, like, I was just... I didn't know what to expect. And it's just, like, one big project after the other and I just like you could feel like the stress of that was on everybody it's kind of unreal like a horror film right especially when Klaus Kinski's like going down the river playing a old gramophone of like opera (laughs) records yes it just looks absurd and like it doesn't look like real life there's like (laughs) surreality to it right and it is horrifying in a way yeah yeah you sent me a clip of um death clock uh, yeah death Corraldo yeah um where there's this showed um metocalypse and there's like a metal band that like kind of takes over the world in a way um called death clock and they have this metal ship that they're on when they're in the amazon and he's like we're gonna bring it up that mountain yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i didn't know the reference of that episode until i watched this i'm like oh my god that's why they called it death corraldo because it's like fitz corraldo and they turn that more into a horror situation where the natives like rise up against them (laughs) is that a series or a movie it's a series oh which what's that on it's um it puts on adult swim oh really it's really it's so ridiculous and funny yeah i like it a lot but yeah, it's pretty easy to see. Like they turned it into a horror movie pretty qu- pretty easily. Like they didn't right. change that many details, and it is horrifying even more so. I think when you watch Burden of Dreams, where you're like, I can't believe they actually committed to this and no, no one bailed. So much stuff happened that wasn't even in e- either of those films. A plane crashed into the set and five people died. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, God, was it in, actually in the film that? 
people died from being hit with arrows from the first tribe. He talked right. about he it. And he showed the arrows, the but he didn't like really show I think three the three or four deaths. people were killed. Yeah, and I don't know. And then you know, I think probably some of the indigenous people were killed by law enforcement or whatever afterwards. Yeah, I'm who like, knows what happens yeah. when they yeah. left? You know. Yeah. Oh, that's a good... I never even thought of that. I've been struggling a lot with this stuff lately, though. Like, that Kubrick style of, like, hammering your actors till they, like, lose their minds and, like, give you, like, a blank line delivery or, like, uh, Tarkovsky movies where he, like, brings them into these, like, irradiated uh, landscapes where they, like, pretty much get cancer and die, like, in the years after the movie's made. Oh, no. Or uh, this one, obviously a lot of lives were, like, lost for art. And a lot of these people are like participating out of like financial necessity. They're not participating in like a self-sacrificing martyrdom for staging Herzog's dream. Like it's good money um, Mm -hmm. and it's consistent money. And I think it was kind of fascinating for them too, because it was so out of the, you know, realm of their everyday life, which basically stayed the same for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that was probably their first glimpse at technology. And maybe for some people it gave them a glimpse of something that they could do that they hadn't thought would be possible before. So there might have been a good. But honestly, it's probably sometimes best just to leave people be. (laughs) And he struggles with it, too. Like, he's showing um, them with, like, Mickey Mouse T-shirts and stuff. And he's like, yeah, the the, um, Western world's, like, encroaching on these, like, other places, you know, and sort of ruining these like preserved cultures sort of like cultural imperialism mm-hmm. and it, it feels like the movie's sort of like an evil act on top of being I this like know. mesmerizing I don't know art. if that's not all a part of evolution isn't exactly the right word but you know a part of how things progress you know we're all in the same world together here <laughs> and there there's going to be little collisions and mm-hmm. hopefully it would you know, lift up both sides and there might be some collateral damage mm-hmm. along the way. Like we can't uh, all stay isolated forever. But um, but there are some lines you don't want to cross and I think it takes a you were crossed in the making of that film. It takes a lot of arrogance for like one man to decide I'm going to make that happen. Yeah. And it looked like Herzog was that arrogant guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's funny. Like yeah. he, he, I think he knows how humorous he's being too when he talks about like the perversity of nature and things. He's got the, kind of a dry sense of humor but it comes across pretty uh well I, w- I will say just like if you're going to compare the two movies we watch like Fitzcarraldo and Caligula Caligula has that same large scale stunt trying to shock you thing M- maybe not as large scale and not as like risky but I found it uh, a lot easier to love just because like the worst that could happen is you know any porn industry exploitation is like the worst human toll like it- is this kind of like a Silly movie in comparison to Fitzcarraldo. Yes. For a movie of the month, we did Gates of Heaven, which is this documentary about pet cemeteries. Mm-hmm. And the director of that, Herzog, from this film, made a bet with him saying he can never finish it. And if he did finish it, he's like, well, Herzog, you have to eat a shoe. And That's almost shoe, right. El- right? They made, a, Morris, they made a movie. Well, Errol Morris directed Gates of Heaven and... Herzog dared him about the shoe. And then Les Blank, who shot Burden of Dreams, shot a documentary about Herzog eating his shoe. Gotcha, because he (laughs) ate it, right? Yeah, he ate it. He boiled it? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And Les Blank was kind of thought of as a New Orleans filmmaker. He's actually from 
well, lived most of the time in Berkeley, but he was here a lot. He went to Tulane and he was oh, here wow. a lot. And around the time I was going to movies, he was here. He made a movie called Always for Pleasure about New Orleans. It was a great movie. It's the best New Orleans documentary I've ever seen. It's really good. Just the sequences of people preparing food in that film are just beautiful mm-hmm. and like gets the vibe of the city better than I think most outside filmmakers get. The other, my kind of favorite New Orleans film is um, Down by Law. Oh, yeah, that's great, Jim too. Jarmusch. I love that one. That's like Tom Waits pretending he's a New Orleanian. Well, they, him and um, who's the saxophone player? John Lurie. Both did great as guys from New Orleans because they had Brooklyn accents, so they had the real accent. They didn't have the fake Cajun accent. Same immigrant backgrounds, mm-hmm. yeah. I like how uh, when they escape from OPP in that movie, they're like instantly in the swamp. Like, <laughs> they escape from prison and they're like in the bayou all of a sudden. Really funny geography gap there. It sounds like you don't think the city pulls off these kinds of like screenings anymore, or is it that they? No, uh, it, it's not. It's not that, and I don't think it's just New Orleans. I think this is maybe worldwide. It's that there's not um, there's not the same scene as there was, you know, back when people were waiting for the next um, Bergman film to come out, or next, you know. Antonioni, oh, it's coming to town. We get, we'll we'll go. I don't know. I, you know, I guess I just got filmstruck. I can seek those out and watch them very mm-hmm. easily. And before I had to wait for them to come to town, so it was kind of an event. Besides, they're not being the scene, even though there's like a little scene, like you said, of people being able to do these pop ups and show digitally the films are you know and they're they're still the britannia and they're still the broad but it's just not the same as it was in the 70s where it was you know kind of a little thing going on and i think um like you said because of the distribution the the backing and whatnot a lot of films like this aren't being made to the extent that they were i might be wrong about that i well i think the scale is exactly right like that's what impressed me more about these two movies than anything was like how big and how like they feel like almost old Hollywood spectacle just with a number of extras and like the a King yeah. Kong style movie almost right. like it's they're huge. There were a lot of films like that back in the you know late 60s early 70s. I think that they're still getting made but they're not getting seen. I think the getting people's attention like the advertising behind them is so much more important right now because all this stuff is online. So you're trying to reach like a global yeah. audience and there's so much content being produced right now that to like be on the tip of someone's tongue and to know how much advertising was put out there that Mandy was even out this week, you know? Right. I didn't know about Maybe it. So. And it's almost gone already, you know? Like <laughs> you have to like... No, I'm like trying to think Actively of like seek the stuff out. what do I see like often to where like that would catch my attention. Like what am I looking at? Like what mm-hmm. am I reading that would make me like aware of something that's going on, you know? And that's, I, know. I do that all day. Like that's my hobby is like looking at like mm-hmm. distribution for this kind of stuff. And then every now and then like a movie like the Neon Demon will play at AMC theater and get like national distributions. Like, I don't know how that happened, that but was a crazy situation. Wonderful that it happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's a weird market right now. I think a lot of the game is getting people's attention, and I think what's missing maybe is that scale of what you're talking about, where it's mm-hmm. just like the funding behind it is just not there anymore. Because I think the interest is certainly there. Mm-hmm. Now I'm starting to think of films that when I lived in San Francisco, things like um, 
Liquid Sky. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that there was like a 1980s kind of vibe. Or, you know, there were a bunch of little things like that that came out and would never be in a multiplex. Yeah. So. Well, I think the community might be different, too, because a lot of this is online culture and not... Yeah. You're, you're describing a scene where you would see the pickle man. Um, right. And I don't yeah. interact with people when I go to the movies. I go by myself a lot, and it's usually like, you know, it's like an indoor kid activity. You sit in the dark, and you don't talk for like two hours and watch the lights I love on the screen. That's yeah. what I like the most about it. And then like if someone tries, I'm like, oh, just leave me alone. Exactly. <laughs> I don't have that community sense that you're talking about where I couldn't – the only like people I talk about movies with are the people on this podcast, really. I think – it's just like maybe it's the type or the community that of people that goes to see these kinds of films. Like sometimes, like I don't know, I don't know if everybody's there for the right reason. If that makes sense, like yeah. some people are just there because they have an extra like ten bucks and they want to go do something, so they don't take it as seriously and they talk over and make annoying comments. There's some people who are really like, yeah, I want to see this. Yeah, I'm we saw this excited. movie uh, <laughs> Double Lover uh, at French Film Fest at oh. Britannia this year, and that's like. This French movie, it starts with an homage to Georges Bataille. So, like, one of the opening shots is, like, a cervical exam with, like, an eyeball in the center of the vagina. And, like, uh, it turns into this weird sort of, like, Cronenberg-type, like, psychosexual horror. Like, really intense, kind of like Caligula, like, on-screen sexuality. Mm -hmm. And a couple, like, gross-out gore moments that sort of come out of nowhere. And then the audience at French Film Fest usually is these, like, you know, older, like, maybe in their... 70s people who want to go see like a Truffaut film. They've and- been to Unchin Andalus 17 <laughs> times. They know what's going down. I don't know. I think they're looking for more like stuffy French New Wave st- type yeah. cinema. So like every now and then they'll get like shocked by a movie like that. There were no walkouts though. I, I always see walkouts at John Waters movies, which I think is an impressive thing to be able to pull yeah. off. In this day and age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the way I heard you describe it is like, seeing pink flamingos for the first time like changed your life in the theater i yeah i think it kind of did a few things happened to me at the same time and that kind of merged together and made me realize a few things about myself and about life right around the same well no, a few years before i saw pink flamingos for the first time i saw alice cooper for the first time and you don't think about it now because he's kind of like the grandpappy of rock. But he was so androgynous because you don't put him in the same, even though it was the glitter rock time, you don't put him in the same category as Bowie or, no. you know, another. But so androgynous and so like not giving a fuck about anything. And I'm like, well, that's something. And then, you know, maybe a few years later, I'm a little older and I saw Pink Flamingos and so even fewer fucks being given about what you can do and what you can't do. And it, I think it kind of like freed up my mind in a lot of ways. It was so, like punk before punk had like a name and a culture yeah. behind yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, it was, and it was right at the beginning of punk because I was just starting to go to punk shows in the late seventies. And I think, you know, the, Alice Cooper was kind of one of the beginnings of punk too. Alice Cooper, Iggy Pop and, mm-hmm. David Bowie was kind of in a whole another little <laughs> thing all on his own, but um, but the same the punk people all went to see David Bowie when he came. So um, when it became apparent to me that I actually could do drag, even though I'm a biological woman, that was like my first thought that you know that I would do Divine. 
And you do like a, a really like large variety of like divine inspired acts. I, I try to work out all the, <laughs> my dream um, look that I'm working on now is the wedding dress from Female Trouble. Nice. So I'm, Ooh, yeah, I'm hoping to, to get that one made for me soon. But, um, <laughs> Last time I saw you perform was before the Peaches Christ uh, screening of um, All About Evil. Mm-hmm. And you did the Cavalcade of Horrors I from just Female did, Trouble. I just did that one again for uh, to introduce a band, gl- this glam rock band, a couple weeks ago. And that one's always a lot of fun because I like having the mohawk. But it's um, it's hard to do. I'd say that All About Evil screening was kind of the vibe that we're talking about here, too. Because it was like a small community of like weirdos in a back room in a bar watching a yeah. slasher comedy. I, I, I re- And I wasn't expecting it at all. You know, I, I just figured it'd be like, you know, anything else, a few people would know about it and go, and I did not realize these people were going to go all out. And the other thing is like, I'm like a fiend for um, candy and there was so much candy there. <laughs> I was like on a sugar rush for like three days after that, <laughs> that was over. But um, I regret yeah, not seeing that. I wish there could be more like a cinematic events like that where they actually, um, you know, it's almost like a castle film where they have a live tableau set up well, i know britannia still has a rocky horror mm-hmm. show and they do the room too where people like throw spoons and footballs and things oh, really? like, yeah i don't know if i could sit through the room again <laughs> <laughs> well do you have any other like drag events coming up soon let's see this thursday i will be at the dragula viewing at cajun's pub it's early it's like seven to nine and that's funny it's the rock episode of Dragula so that should be some fun lip sync action there and um next week on Wednesday I am at um Grand Prix for the American Horror Story um apocalypse viewing party followed by video game night so last time I was there I played Mario Kart for the first time it was really (laughs) embarrassing so th- next week I'm a host, so I don't have to actually play. I can just <laughs> make other people play. But that's a really fun show, that Grand Prix. It's, I don't know if Cajuns, they're both on um, Rampart and then St. Claude within you know, a few blocks there's of each other. There's a whole other. circle of like bars that yeah. do shows. In that um, but there's two huge drag shows, people into drag, that are coming up. And one is the third annual Miss Pageant pageant on October 1st at, at um, One-Eyed Jacks. And then that Thursday, um, a really great queen from RuPaul's Drag Race, Raja, oh, yeah. has a one-woman show at Always Lounge on October 4th. Oh, my God. Raja is so. the first, like, drag queen I ever had a crush on. Nice. <laughs> gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, you should come. It's good. And you could be right up close to Raja. Oh, my too. God. They did that, like, Robin el- double elimination thing, right? They're like, they're like a Robin song that them and another queen did together. Oh, Carmen, oh, Carmen yeah. Carrera. Mm-hmm. That was probably the most Oof. erotic lip sync for your life Absolutely. of all yeah, it was drag history. It was great. Yeah. That's for uh, Dancing on My Own. Was that the Robin one? Yeah, I remember that one. Uh, I loved Raja because Raja was so, it was like a very, he's a very like androgynous queen. They seem to be, you know, like as the seasons go by, they seem to be getting more androgynous now. Yeah, I like, like that. Yeah, I just went to... Um, the queens from season 10, the ones, all the ones that didn't win, mm-hmm. had a show at Jefferson Parish Art Theater. I don't know how I found out about it. They didn't advertise it at I all. Have, I, just, I heard about that later, and I'm like, oh, they were and, a um, Almost none of them <laughs> wear, wear titties, and, uh-huh. but they were great. They were so much better live than they were 
on the TV show, I was really glad I went. Where can people find your drag stuff online? I'm on Facebook as CCV DeMinth, and there's some pictures. I'm so bad with um, Instagram. I need to I need to work on my IG skills <laughs> and put a bunch of pictures up. I have an Instagram, but I've hardly ever been on it. My my daughter comes home for Christmas. I'll get her to work on it with me. We'll link to that too, and you can see us on Mardi Gras Day next year too. Uh, you see like a group of like six people dressed like Divine in the quarter. It's probably us. You can go say hello. <laughs> I might have to do um, Don Davenport next year with nice. the Mohawk. That'll be fun. Ooh. I think I'm doing Lust in the Dust next year. Ooh. <laughs> Even though it's a terrible a movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's a really it's a really good look though. Yeah. I want to do. I've always wanted to do um, Francine Fishpaw. And I always kind of put that idea to the side, but just like walking around with like a aerosol can of like room spray, <laughs> something. Funny, I have a nephew named Bobo now, and every time I hear his <laughs> name, I think about Steve Baders. He's gonna grow up to be Bobo. You get to do a lot of like heavy drinking as Francine too. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I could get one of those like just my size like um, matching sweatpants suits from Walmart so and just dribble the liquor yeah. on me. <laughs> Love it. Oh, Francine. <laughs> uh, well, you can check out pictures of us as Crew Divine last year, too. Um, at the top of the page, there's a Crew Divine tab. And there's also the one we just added for now playing. So if you want to see smaller releases that are playing just for a few days in the city, I've been trying to like link to those so people know they're even coming out. Oh, trying to be a little more useful, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Instead of just like giving opinions with no context. Well, it's helpful for me because, like, like I'm all over the place, and I like I don't know. Like, being able to like read that every week helps me figure out like what's out there and what I need to catch before it goes away. Awesome. I like that. And all that's on Swampflix.com. Mm-hmm. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.